This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Welcome to the Nursing World Shared Practice Forum. I'm Dr. Elaine Meyer. I'm a nurse and clinical psychologist at Boston Children's Hospital. I am the director of the Institute for Professionalism and Ethical Practice, and I'm also an associate professor of psychology at Harvard Medical School. It's my privilege today to be here with Dr. Pamela Grace. Dr. Grace is an associate professor of adult health and ethics. She originally trained in the UK. She completed her baccalaureate and her master's degree in nursing in the United States. In 1998, she completed a PhD in philosophy with a concentration in medical ethics. And she has been actively involved in teaching medical ethics and moral reasoning for the past 20 years. She's lectured extensively and published widely. So, Dr. Grace, what led you to your interest and your focus on philosophy and ethics? Well, first of all, thank you very much for inviting me here, Elaine. And um, it's really a privilege to be able to talk about this. So the reasons I got into um, pursuing a PhD in philosophy and ethics was that during my course of work in intensive care units um, and critical care units, and then after that as an advanced um, nurse practitioner in adult health, I came across so many problems in practice mm -hmm. that I wasn't, um, I didn't feel prepared to address. I found them very troubling. Um, I often felt that I was all alone, that I had no one to ask what's going on here. And mm -hmm. um, mostly there were problems of not getting the patient the sorts of things that I thought they needed. So there were all sorts of obstacles to me giving good care to mm -hmm. patients. And um, there were no ethics resources around in those days, or if there were ethics resources, they were sort of the purview of the physicians. They could uh, call an ethics consult, but the nurses were sort of left on their own to try and figure out how they should resolve these problems. So in uh, practice, especially in intensive care unit practice, there are many obstructions to getting the patient what you need. It might be that there aren't enough staff or the families pressuring the patients to um, go along with treatment they don't want or physicians arguing with each other or the team not talking to each other, people not being on the same page, lack of resources and so on and so forth. But I often felt that I was really a very poor nurse because mm. I didn't know how to address these problems, and we didn't tend to talk to each other about them. We might complain about being overworked. So Pam, it really was your personal experience with moral distress then, and that sense of isolation that really prompted you to go on for your, your doctorate. Yes, um, as part of the PhD, actually, um, I read an article that criticized nurses um, for using the term advocacy as sort of a mantra because the woman who wrote the article said that nurses shouldn't use that to further their profession. 
And I thought, well, that sounds very strange because that's not what I'm doing. Mm. So I um, decided that I would look at the idea of advocacy in a lot more depth. What does it mean? And I came to the conclusion that it really for nurses, it means that your every action you take on a daily basis is about trying to do the right thing for patients. And so if you can't do those, like if you can't, if you have your clinical judgment, your knowledge, your experience, and you know what the right thing to do is, and you can't do it, mm. it's very troubling. Mm. And especially if you don't know how to articulate that in a way that gets everybody else on the same page. So that led me also to look at the issue of moral distress mm. that nurses face. Many nurses are reporting that, their distress. I'm wondering if you could tell us in our audience a little bit about what um, sort of what are the ingredients and what comes together to make a situation of moral distress for nurses? So um, just to give some background on what's been done on moral distress uh, more recently. So it started off that um, Andrew Jameton actually, who was a philosopher who taught nursing ethics to nursing students, realized that a lot of the a lot of the things they brought up in class were really about how troubled they were by what they saw in practice and what they felt they ought to be doing but weren't able to do. So he coined the phrase moral distress in 1984 in his book um, on nursing ethics. And his definition of moral distress was the negative responses that occur when you know the ethically appropriate course of action but can't carry it out. Since then, he's realized that many different healthcare professions and in fact people in everyday life experience moral distress when they're obstructed in doing what they feel is morally warranted, what kinds of actions are good. Pamela, may I ask you, are nurses particularly vulnerable to moral distress compared, say, to other practitioners? I would say that the research shows that people who are actually at the bedside mm -hmm. and most in tune with patients do suffer a higher level of moral distress, because probably because they face these situations mm -hmm. over and over again. They know the patients. They have a connection with the patients. Often they're the ones that are actually pushing more medicines or doing more needle sticks, or doing more interventions that are painful or uncomfortable. I would say probably the biggest hurdle for ICU nurses is, is this idea of having to do interventions that are cause the patient's suffering when it becomes obvious that the patient is not in a particularly good place mm -hmm. where they um, would perhaps be better off having comfort measures. But nurses often aren't heard when they try to articulate that in, the mil in a multidisciplinary forum. Or the physicians perhaps are more focused on um, trying to address the immediate situation, try and get the numbers better, try and get the um, physiological signs mm -hmm. better. So I'd say in intensive care units, um, that's perhaps one of the reasons that nurses experience moral distress more. 
And in fact, I could give you some other examples. The research on moral distress in adult settings really surrounds end-of-life decisions, in working with incompetent other providers, mm. um, in, inability to have good communication, or there are mixed messages. The family members are getting one message from the physician, another message from the nurse, another message from the family, mm -hmm. and they don't know who to trust or who to believe in. And then I would say witnessing on what they consider unnecessary suffering of patients. Also, when their environments of work are unsupportive, or sometimes people call them toxic environments. Mm -hmm. And one of the big issues has also been inadequate staffing, when mm -hmm. nurses don't have enough bodies to do the work. Mm -hmm. I wonder if I could turn now to our colleagues around the world and ask a question. First, could you state your city and your country location? And the question is this. Are these the sorts of situations that cause moral distress for you in your settings and countries? Or are there other types of problems more frequent or concerning that cause moral distress? And now we're back with Dr. Pamela Grace. So these different uh, aspects, these, these factors, are they cumulative? Yes, so the, um, there has been work that's been done, especially in, um, in neonatal intensive mm -hmm. care unit settings, for example, um, that show that over time, if you don't resolve the moral distress, then the, the amount of suffering you personally have from the moral distress goes up. So there are a couple of things that happen when nurses um, experience morally distressing situations. They either um, distance themselves because this has had an accumulative effect on them so they can't take it anymore. So then they kind of numb their own emotional feelings, which is bad for patients, mm -hmm. or they leave the profession, which mm -hmm. is bad for patients. So. It's a real problem for hospitals, nurses, and the patients when nurses actually experience moral distress. And we do also have some evidence to suggest that the nurses that are more sensitive are more likely to experience moral distress. We also have some emerging evidence. Could that, you say, what, what do you mean by the nurse being more sensitive? So nurses who kind of really understand what their role is in providing good oh. patient care um, are more likely to experience moral distress because they kind of realize the full weight of the responsibility mm -hmm. for the patient. Mm -hmm. um, we also know that um, there's some emerging evidence to show that, in fact, women suffer moral distress more than men. So if this is there's a couple of studies that are starting to show mm -hmm. that. They haven't been validated, but there is some, it has to be pursued further, I think, because it's an important additional insight. Mm -hmm. I would say for pediatric settings, which since this is a pediatric mm -hmm. open um, forum, that um, there are slightly different issues. So for one thing, Pediatric nurses really overall suffer less moral distress than nurses in other settings. And it's unclear what the reasons are, but it may be that children more often recover and go on to mm -hmm. live good lives. Mm -hmm. 
but it's not true for nurses who work in the neonatal intensive care or um, other intensive care units in pediatric settings or in oncology. So their moral distress experiences tend to be about decisions about care, direction, redirection, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, prolonged life support of an infant in the face of its dying, family wishes um, getting prevalence over um, what the baby's mm -hmm. best interests are, once again, incompetent colleagues and physicians, and um, caring for a ventilator-dependent infant when nobody will say no. There also is, are some studies in um, the pediatric intensive care units and oncology studies that show that the most morally distressing are those problems that are recur over and over again. So the most frequently experienced are also the most distressing. And that makes sense if you think of um, the idea of moral distress being a crescendo thing, that the more you experience, the higher the level of distress is. I think the other part of that is continuing life support when it's obviously not in the child's best interest mm -hmm. to do so. So the setting, so you said that pediatric nurses experience less moral distress than nurses taking care in adult settings, but there's a few settings in particular, the, the PICU setting, the NICU setting, as well as oncology settings. So those would be really where we see more um, end-of-life situations and uh, intensive care. So, that, so it's, it's that niche within pediatrics in general. Yes. So Pam, can you say what happens when this moral distress that you're describing is unresolved, is unchecked, is, is um, the nurse isn't able to address that? What happens? So they can have physiological problems, they can have loss of appetite, be depressed, be anxious, all of the kinds of things you get with a stress reaction. Um, they can also become psychologically depressed and have a sense of loss of integrity, personal integrity because they feel like they're not good nurses. It must be something wrong with them. Why can't they get it done? Because often people will lead them to believe that also. You know, why aren't you, why aren't you doing that? Why aren't you getting your work accomplished? So um, instead of addressing the situation, you turn it in on yourself and feel like there's something wrong with you. And if that goes on long enough, why would you stay doing a job that's so unrewarding when you came into nursing to do a job that's supposed to be rewarding? What is the antidote to this, to this moral distress? What, yeah. how, how can we combat this? So from my perspective as a longtime nurse, nurse educator, um, and someone who, who has worked clinically um, in clinical ethics. I think there are lots of different ways to address it, but I think the single most important thing in addressing moral distress is to help nurses see how they can actually act to resolve issues. And the action may not be in the moment, because in the moment when something's occurred and you can't resolve it, then you have to do the best you can. But after the fact, in discussing what went on, you can then plan to make sure that you have ways to address it in the future. 
So you can't do that on your own. I think we could we could educate nurses to be attuned to the to the responsibilities. We could give them the nursing knowledge that they already have. We could help raise their consciousness. But I think it's also important that they understand ethical principles and case and how to analyze a situation so that they can look at the different parts of it and think, how could this best be resolved? And so that they have a way to articulate mm -hmm. to the other team members mm -hmm. how best to proceed and what's going on with the patient and that they have an important role. I wonder if I could turn now to our colleagues around the world and ask a question. First, could you state your city and your country location? And the question is this. What resources does your institution have to help educate nurses about moral distress and moral agency? And we're back now. I know in some of your writing, you've talked about how important it is for nurses and other professionals to have the language of ethics, that they feel um, well-versed in, in, in that kind of language and can understand problems and sort of that moral distress and be able to, in a sense, translate that into ethics language and then to be able to um, address it ethically. Could you say a little bit more about that? Because you've done quite a bit in terms of uh, your special, uh, the, the clinical ethics nursing residency. Uh, yeah. Could you say, I, how yeah. would we do that? Over the years, we have, uh, my colleagues and I, have become really, had become really aware that so many nurses were suffering from moral distress or needing to have some cl clinical ethics expertise or feeling like they needed the tools to be able to address the problems they were seeing. So we had had originally a year, um, a day long each year we had a day-long clinical ethics program and there were always like three times as many people would mm. want to come to it than could. So it made us think we needed to do something more. So we developed a program that got funded by a HRSA grant to, and it was under the leadership of Ellen Robinson who was the PI, but then Martha Yorchak, Dr. Martha Yorchak and I were sub-PI or co-PIs. Um, and we developed a program that basically offered nurses one day a month, one whole day a month ethics education where we used um, self-reflection, we used um, the American Society of Bioethics and Humanities curriculum for clinical ethics consultants, the idea that nurses have goals that they are trying to gain or they're trying to help patients, and we made this curriculum that had some didactic, some communication modules, some clinical practice in terms of um, high fidelity simulation, mm -hmm. uh, role play. So everything fitted together, the, co the didactic content, the role play, the simulation, and then the self-reflection on um, the cases after the fact. And we did that for nine months. So the nurses had a very long program where they slowly but surely developed their ability to look at cases, analyze them, and um, find ways to resolve the problem. So um, as part of the 
actual project, we had a 16-hour mentored practicum. So each of the faculty helped a certain number of nurses that were in the program to start ethics rounds, to be on ethics committees, to do the sorts of things that would sustain their um, knowledge development. The program was incredibly empowering for the mm -hmm. nurses. The fact that they could talk to each other, it transformed the practice in ways that they had no idea it would do. And at the end, the evaluation showed that we had actually decreased moral distress and increased their confidence in the moral decision-making. And there were several, um, we had them write a narrative at the beginning of the program why they wanted to be in the program. Those narratives were incredibly powerful. At the end of the program, we had them write narratives about how the program had helped them in the practice, mm -hmm. and we asked them to give us examples of how their practice had changed. We're in the process of analyzing those now, so we don't actually have um, the end result of that. Mm -hmm. But I think there is little doubt from the, that program and the, and the development of it that we actually did increase the ethics expertise in those hospitals where it was offered. Do you have any uh, data to suggest that it not only decreased moral distress of the people who were the residents and went through the program, but the units in which they worked? Uh, have you been able to demonstrate that or we look at that? Uh, because it was an education and not a research project, mm -hmm. we have not actually been able to demonstrate that it actually did increase the ethics or the ethical climate in the mm -hmm. institution mm -hmm. as such. However, the number of units that now have nurse-led ethics rounds, even interdisciplinary ethics rounds, has, um, has tripled, I would say. And also, in order to keep sustaining this, there are, um, every three months, there are what we call um, continuation sessions so that they can come back. But one of our ideas also was that we would build a cohort on the unit of more than one person so that they would have support for each mm -hmm. other. Pam, I'm, I'm wondering, um, short of uh, nurses being trained through the, the whole nine months, would you have any suggestions for uh, educational um, initiatives that could really help to address moral distress that might be uh, able to be, in a sense, sort of fit into the infrastructure of a unit, let's say in hour-long sessions, or do you have any suggestions for that? Yeah, so I have lots of suggestions. Um, yeah, obviously, it's going to be, it would be very difficult for institutions to replicate that nine-month study as, uh, that nine-month offering as such, because we had incredible faculty. For one thing, you wouldn't get such a concentration of faculty in one place, I think, anywhere else. Um, however, I think there are lots of things that can be done to change the climate of um, units and the institution. So I think one thing is that nurses really do need to school themselves or make sure they um, understand how ethics fits, how they language of ethics fits into all of this. I think they need to access someone who has some kind of ethics expertise. Now, it may be that there isn't any in the hospital, there's no ethics resources, but most universities have on their faculty philosophers who do ethics or do bioethics or do humanities. 
that are they're very used to helping people figure out what their problems are. So I would say that um, accessing someone who has those skills and joining forces so that you tell them what your problems are and you have them help you think about it is one way to do it. I definitely think you need to build on their communication skills. People need to understand that they really have strong responsibilities to articulate the patient's perspective. And they're the ones that know the patient's perspective because mm -hmm. they're the ones at the bedside. And for nurses to use already the knowledge they have, but to channel it into a way that they can look at cases, pass out what the problems are, and start addressing them is a collaborative. You can't do it on your own. Mm -hmm. So I would say monthly meetings, short meetings, but in a sustained ongoing basis where you gradually introduce the language of ethics, the principles, how ethical analysis helps, how communication allows you to speak more clearly to the issues, um, your own self-reflection, because I think a lot of what happens is people aren't aware of the biases they form and how they influence the way they're looking at things. So a lot of moral distress also may be that a person thinks what's going on is not right, but in fact, if they step back, analyze what's going on, pass out the different issues, they would realize, well, actually, it's this person's choice to make this decision, not mine. I can facilitate the decision. I can provide the information. I can get people to talk to each other, but um, to understand where actually the decision-making lies, for example. So you're really talking about a culture shift here, transformation of a culture that really does incorporate the everyday ethics of clinical practice and having us really understand everyday ethics and the language of ethics so that we can, again, in a sense, to combat some of our own moral distress and understand it better. I wonder if I could turn now to our colleagues around the world and ask a question. First, could you state your city and your country location? And the question is this. What opportunities are available in your institutions or countries for nurses to develop their ethical decision-making skills? Are nurses members of ethics committees or other leadership committees in your settings? And we're back now. I, I've heard you speak um, a little bit about the difference between emotional distress and moral distress. And I wonder if you could just maybe share with our audience the difference. Yes, yeah, so we have, we all have emotional distress about a whole lot of different things that have nothing to do with being unable to do the right thing. Um, we have emotional distress about, you know, getting a divorce, losing your cat, um, just not getting enough sleep, um, that's our distress for our problems. But moral distress is really more about the distress you feel when you know you have a responsibility to somebody else and you can't accomplish that responsibility. So they're very related. But I think one of the things that does happen to nurses when they have no outlet is that they let the emotion take over and that clouds what they do. Instead of saying, okay, so this is the emotional reaction I'm having to this problem, but what, are, what is it actually about this problem that's 
an issue. Mm. How can I um, look at this in a reasonable way so that I can say, yes, this is what's going on here, so then I can articulate it. But people don't listen to nurses when they have an emotional reaction. and they, So a physician's not going to listen to you if you say, oh, Mrs. So-and-so doesn't want this. You know, that's not going to do, it's not going to solve the problem. But what might solve the problem is saying, so I've talked to Mrs. So-and-so about her issue, and she's made a decision that she would really like comfort measures rather than continuing on, for example, with chemotherapy, because the few extra months that that will get her is not going to help her. So if I articulate it in clear terms um, and articulate her perspective in clear terms, then I have made a dent in the problem. Mm. And it may be I have to bring other people together, maybe that we have to talk about what really the goal is, why are we doing this? But I think nurses really do know a lot more than they often will speak up about, or if they speak up about it, it's because they're so annoyed mm. that it's the emotional reaction. And that necessarily doesn't necessarily change the situation. Mm -hmm. So I think it's also helping nurses to really figure out why they're feeling what they're feeling. Mm -hmm. So maybe even for nurses to be able to recognize when they're experiencing moral distress. Yes, and being able to name it. I mean, I think that, I think all of this work that's been done on moral distress has been very helpful for nurses, but the problem is it's almost been too helpful. So now every time they feel a bit uncomfortable or emotionally upset, it's moral distress, when moral distress is a very particular thing. It's you can't, you know what you're supposed to be doing mm -hmm. in your role as a nurse and you're not doing it. Mm -hmm. And you're either not doing it because somebody's stopping you doing it, you're not doing it because you don't feel like you have a right to speak up, or um, you're not doing it because somebody else is, there's nobody on the unit supporting you. One person is, is actually the voice of reason, but everybody mm -hmm. else has been used to doing it a different way. Mm -hmm. So they're going to keep doing it, and you're the odd man out. I'm curious what advice you might have for um, leadership personnel, let's say nurse managers on the unit, um, our physician leadership on the unit, how, how might they help uh, to recognize moral distress and what might they do to help in their individual units or institutions to, to, uh, to help with this? So that's a great question. And um, I think actually collaborative work is the best way to go about it. But in hierarchical institutions, it's very difficult mm -hmm. to make sure all the players are heard. So I would say if it comes to administration, if it comes to the physicians, um, they need to treat the nurses as people who actually have something to say. They have the patient's perspective. Without the nurse, the physician can't do his or her job properly. And without the physician, the nurses can't do mm -hmm. his or her job properly. It takes all of us to resolve some of these really complex problems that arise in modern hospitals, where there's all sorts of things we can do. But the question is really, should we always be doing the life-sustaining treatments when, in fact, the patient would be better off having comfort measures or having their wishes honored? I wonder if I could turn now to our colleagues around the world and ask a question. First, could you state your city and your country location? 
And the question is this, are NICU and pediatric nurses in your setting encouraged to speak up and collaborate with others? If not, what gets in the way? And now we're back with Dr. Pamela Grace. So Pam, what strategies can individual nurses at the bedside uh, employ? I would say at first it, it requires recognizing that moral distress is something that is not something that you should have to be dealing with, that you there are ways to empower yourself to change things. I would say edu continuing education is an important part of it. Uh, I would say find a mentor who has some expertise in ethics to help you. I think um, that you should be looking in the literature to see what's been written about some of these problems. Like there is a lot in the literature about moral distress and how it should be addressed. Also, there are specialty nursing interest groups that um, often have a forum. So I would say you can't deal with it on your own. You need to find other like-minded people, and then you need to devise ways to go about addressing the issue. And I would say you need to access an expert if you're not an expert yourself. You've talked about moral agency as being sort of the, 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 antidote. the antidote. So would you like to say a bit about that? Yes, so we do know that when people know how to address morally distressing situations, that that reduces the moral distress and it helps to prevent residual. Uh, so I would say that moral agency is the ability to act to overcome problems that cause moral distress. So if you see yourself as someone who can make change, even if it's only incremental. If you see yourself as someone that is able to represent the patient's point of view, that is able to speak up and articulate what the problem is in a given um, case, then you are less likely to experience moral distress. But I would also say that moral distress probably comes and goes, that we can't avoid all morally distressing situations, and that, um, we just live in a world where things happen all the time that seem to be beyond our control. As they, in those situations, it's best to actually discuss the case after the fact with people who perhaps weren't involved in it, who could help you think through how you might do things better next time. I wonder if I could turn now to our colleagues around the world and ask a question. First, could you state your city and your country location? And the question is this, what opportunities are there for nurses in your settings to develop their moral agency? As examples, their knowledge of professional goals and responsibilities, their knowledge of ethical language and decision making. What about opportunities for guided discussion and other opportunities? And we're back now. And I understand that you've prepared a bibliography for us, so that will also be available to yeah. our audience. Uh, so I have, it's not a complete list, so I don't want people to think that um, this, I might have left somebody off, but I have made um, a reference list of, of some of the uh, seminal or early works on moral distress, um, describing some of the tools to measure moral distress, and then I have also some of the more recent uh, 
studies on moral distress mm -hmm. that I think would really help people understand what's going on. And then really it, the, the objective is to empower yourself to actually do what you know you mm -hmm. ought to be doing, what your um, code of ethics mm -hmm. says you should do. Well, Pam, I want to thank you so much for this interview. Um, I really enjoyed it thoroughly, and I'm sure that our open pediatrics audience uh, similarly is really going to uh, give this a lot of thought. Thanks again. Well, thank you very much, Elaine. You've been a very good interviewer, and you made it very easy for me just to um, address some of the important issues. And I just want the audience to know that um, there is help out there for you. You're not alone. So here's to your moral agency. <laughs> well put. Thank you very much. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.